clock. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Christmas sermons may be the hardest sermons of all to preach. They may be the ones that people hear the most. Christmas and Easter are those times of the year when it seems like everybody says basically the same thing. So what I want to try to do is I want to try to deal this morning with the Christmas story without uh, treading down old, worn-out territory and familiar territory so much so that you have a tendency to sit and maybe slip into neutral a little bit. And I want to preach to you on the subject, I'm dreaming of a right Christmas. I'm dreaming of a right Christmas. Those of you who are moms and dads know what Christmas gets like about this time of the year. Just about sometime this afternoon, you're going to figure out the batteries are not included. And no place in town is going to have them. Then you're going to get some instructions that were printed in some foreign language that you can't read, and you didn't want to read them anyway when you started putting it together. You know, you were smart enough. You've got a college education. Just start putting the things together. And about halfway through, or maybe when you've got it all put together and there's 17 other parts sitting over here in this box, you're thinking, surely life has got to get better than this. We've got all kind of images of Christmas and things that come to our mind. It's gifts and giving of gifts. And when you go into a mall or a shopping area, you'll hear people talking about gifts. Like, what are you going to get me? What am I going to give? And how much money do I have? And I wonder if they'll call and check on my charge card before I make this purchase and all those kind of things. And you hear Bing Crosby singing in the background, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. Well, I'm dreaming of a right Christmas. A Christmas in which we refocus our attention on what Christmas is all about, why we are here, why we have assembled this morning to celebrate and to worship the living Lord Jesus Christ. And it will be a right Christmas when we understand what the significance of Christmas means. And that is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15. One little verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15. Paul is writing to a church 60 years after the birth of Christ, a church in Greece, and he comes to this verse after he's talking in chapter 8 and 9 about his ministry. He comes to this church and he talks about gifts, and he tries to think of an illustration of the greatest gift he can think of, and his mind goes to Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 9, 15, he says, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now, my task for the next 25 or 30 minutes is to preach on what Paul said he couldn't describe. That's a little difficult. But I do think this verse ought to somehow be on every Christmas card. This is not a verse that we read in any of the nativity passages. In fact, most people would not read this verse and look at it in light of Christmas. But I want you to look at it. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. And when you think of that verse in light of Christmas, in light of what Christ has done for us, when you think about the indescribable nature of the gift, when you realize that it was written by a man who had the greatest theological mind that the world has ever known, a master of the Greek language, 
trained under Gamaliel, knowledgeable in theology, a mastermind in every area and every field, the greatest theological mind known to man, probably the greatest man that ever lived, because we know that Christ was God and man. The greatest Christian would be the Apostle Paul. And he comes to this passage, and he starts talking about what God did for us in Jesus Christ, and he can't think up a word. And so, whether you realize it or not, the word indescribable, that original Greek word, was a word that Paul the Apostle made up. He just made it up. He created it. He coined the word. It was nowhere else to be found in the Septuagint, the Greek Bible of his day. None of the disciples had used this word. It was not a common word of the day. And so Paul, trying to describe what Christ had done for us, in the coming at, at uh, Bethlehem, Paul says, well, it was just... And you almost sense, as you read it in its original context, you almost sense that there is this pregnant pause, and, and Paul is saying, thanks be to God for... It's just indescribable. The word indescribable is a word that describes what words can't describe. Translators have tried to translate this word, and they can't even come up with a good translation for it. Some have called it unspeakable. Others have said it is a gift too awesome for words. Others have said it is precious beyond telling. Someone has described it as a wonder beyond description or a gift beyond words. And Paul comes and says, Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Have you ever tried to describe Jesus Christ and found yourself at a loss for words? For all that he had done and being overwhelmed by what he did for us, not only at Bethlehem, but at Calvary, what he did with our sins, and found yourself at that point in time just absolutely unable to communicate, almost as if you had lost most of your vocabulary. That's where Paul is. Paul says, I, I've, I've got it all up here. I've got all this learning. I've got all this theological knowledge. But, but folks, what I'm, what I'm trying to tell you is I can't explain it. I can't describe it. You can't fathom how good this gift was that God gave to us, this indescribable gift that he gave to us. And so this awesome indescribable gift is what I'm going to try to deal with this morning. And I want to deal with it in the context of answering four questions. Question number one is, when was the gift delivered? When was the gift delivered? Question number two is, why was the gift provided? Number three is, how was the gift wrapped? And number four is, what is the value of the gift? Let's look at question number one. Number one, when was the gift delivered? This is a reference to time. When was the gift delivered? Turn, if you would, to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Notice that there are two definite articles, the, in this first part of this verse. When the fullness of the time. It doesn't say when fullness of time. That's too general. 
It says, when the fullness, the absolute definite fullness of the absolute definite time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. He came at a definite point in time. The gift was delivered by eternal God who is unrestricted by time. He limited himself to a time and to a place and he delivered his gift in the fullness of the time and provided the son that we needed. Now, any of you that are moms, you know the toil and the pain and the work that you go through to prepare a nursery. And your husband thinks, hey, just put up a bed and throw a sheet over it and, you know, get a bear and stick it in the corner and everything will be fine, but you don't buy that. It's got to be the right kind of crib and it's got to be the right kind of blanket and it's got to be the right kind of little gown that they sleep in and there's got to be this little thing that plays little music and does all these little stuff and it has the right kind of little thing that floats around over the top of it. It can't be just any old thing. It's got to be right. This is your baby. You're bringing home your baby not to just a generic room, it's their room. It's their place, it's their home, and you're making it personal. You know what, that's exactly what God did. He came into the world and prepared the world specifically and at a point in time for His Son. Now I want us to look at the world because the world was interesting at the time of Christ. It was dominated by Roman rule. It was a world in which uh, Rome had taken control of everything, and when you see the birth of Christ in light of the times, you understand that it was in the fullness of the time that God came. Let's talk about the Roman world for a second. The Romans had absolute, unquestioned authority and control over the world. They ruled from Britain all the way to the borders of India. They had established a conglomeration of countries and a, and a syndication of governors that had worked together under one rule, the Roman rule. It is interesting that during the time of the Roman rule that they established ports in every major city in the Mediterranean and in North Africa. But not only that, the Romans were the first people to ever develop a highway system. In fact, the Romans had a paved highway system. Now, if you're going to spread the gospel that God has sent a son in the fullness of time, you need a way to communicate. The way you communicate is you have a port in every major city and you have a major established highway system so that the news can travel fast. There were roads cut in every corner of the empire so that the Roman army could march at any point, at any time, to any place and get there quickly. Rome had established this system and developed this to reach the length of the empire. God knowing that the gospel would need to be spread beyond the Jews allowed Rome to come into power and gave them the knowledge to establish a highway system. Not only that... But there was a common language, Greek. Now the Romans spoke Latin, but the language of the day, the language of the world was Greek. It was the common denominator. Alexander the Great, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, had come in and found that he had a kingdom that he was trying to rule that was fragmented. You couldn't communicate. And so he dictated that in the eastern Mediterranean area, 
that Greek would become the common language and that everyone would learn to speak Greek. And so thus, Greek became the language of literature, it became the language of philosophy, it became the language of culture, and in this common language, which has verb forms that are so exact and is the broadest of all languages known to man, the only language that comes close to Greek would be German. For it is a language that in every word has a particular shading and a particular meaning, and there is no doubt as to detail. Greek is the most exact language known to man. It is an unbelievable language. It is so complicated in its layout of how it structures everything, and every verb has a significant meaning. Every participle has a significant meaning. And God came in a time where there was one common language that no matter educated or uneducated, you knew how to speak that language. God came into a world with one language where the gospel could be spread from one place around the world by means of one language. They didn't have to learn another language to spread the gospel. The Greeks had established this language. Alexander the Great had seen to it that everybody used it, and it carried over even through Roman rule. And not only that, but there was a decaying society. The people in Rome were becoming sick of the decadence and the immorality and the deification of the emperors. Caesar Augustus had named himself that because it was the closest thing to a name for deity that he could come up with. The Caesars thought themselves to be gods. And so the people, the common people, were beginning to turn away because society was decaying. Most of the Roman emperors were homosexuals. The society was falling apart at the seams. There were no morals. There were no values. The philosophy at this time of Socrates and Plato had not changed society. And so they began to turn, surprisingly, to Jewish synagogues. And there, in great numbers, Gentiles went to Jewish synagogues looking for answers, looking for morality, looking for hope, looking for promises, and in those Jewish synagogues they would hear the readings and the prophecies of a coming Messiah. God, at a specific point in time, prepared a world for the coming of Christ. Not only did he prepare it because of the Roman Empire and because of a common language and because of a decaying society, he prepared it biblically. Micah chapter 5 says, But as for you, O Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler of Israel. Now I want you to notice what God did in Micah chapter 5 verse 2. God obligated himself to a place and to a person. God obligated himself to a little whistle-stop town in Israel that had a population of less than 1,000 at the time of Christ, and 500 years before Christ was born, God said, I'm going to tell you how you're going to know he's Messiah. He's going to be born, he's going to rule, and he will come from Bethlehem. Not from Jerusalem, not from Rome, not from Constantinople, not from any major city. He's going to come from a little hole-in-the-wall town on the outskirts of nowhere. And that's where the ruler is going to come from. God said the person and the place, and it will all be tied in to Bethlehem. Now here's the problem. God has limited himself 
to a place, Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph do not live in Bethlehem. They live in Nazareth. It is several days' journey if you're going to walk. And so God allowed and developed and orchestrated in His sovereign will for Caesar to get the idea that he couldn't get enough money for his elaborate lifestyle on the way things were going. And so he placed within the mind of Caesar to increase taxes. Now that's not as easy as the IRS does it today. Because you see, to increase taxes, they had to do something they had not done. They had to take a census. And to take a census, they had to get people to go to their hometown. Now I want you to understand, folks, at the right time, God orchestrated the events of history. He placed within the mind of a pagan leader the need for taxation. He placed within a woman by the conception of the Holy Spirit a child which would become Messiah, God-man, Jesus Christ. They were in Nazareth, and at the right time, at the right place, with the right events, he put all of that together, and Cornelius came from Syria to be temporarily governor of Judea to orchestrate the tax system, and all of them came together in one place. And the world stands around and says, My, isn't that a coincidence? Friends, that's no coincidence. That's the sovereignty of God working in behalf of men. Because I'm going to tell you something. A woman that is full term is not going to travel unless she is compelled to travel. There must be a reason, and she was forced to travel because Joseph had to go to his hometown, and guess where his hometown was? Bethlehem. You see, Joseph wasn't planning on going to Bethlehem to celebrate Christmas. He was planning on being in Nazareth and going to the Nazareth General Hospital. That's where he was planning on ending up. But God had another plan. And so God had to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. And so the way he did it is he got Caesar to get a tax and require a census and got Quirinius from Syria to Judea and put it all together in a whistle-stop town. You can walk out of here this morning and say, well, that's just an amazing coincidence. But my friends, I'll tell you, it's a sovereign act of God that in a time and place God delivered His gift. And God took the whims of a dictator and He took a lowly couple. He went from the highest strata of society to the lowest strata of society and He worked everything together and in the right time and place, God gave His Son and every prophecy was fulfilled. Now, not only when was the gift delivered, but number two, when, why was the gift provided? Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Why was the gift provided? For those of you that are worried, the last points are not as long as the first one, so don't get uptight, okay? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Look at verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. Now I want you to notice verse 1 again. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
You notice God did not say that the purpose for the gift was that men were sick or crippled or weak or helpless. God said we were dead in sins, and dead men need to come to life. And so God provided a gift with a purpose. And God, verse 4 says, being rich in mercy. You know where he was rich in mercy? Well, he was rich in mercy before the world was ever established, but he showed he was rich in mercy, mercy in a manger in Bethlehem. That's where he was rich in mercy. In Bethlehem he came and he made us alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. It was a gift that was provided. The purpose of it was that we were dead and we need to be made alive. And God made us alive. He quickened us by grace, by mercy, and by love. God came and made a right Christmas and gave us the right gift because we were dead in sin. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but a lot of do-gooders come out at Christmas. I mean, every pagan and reprobate in the world is all of a sudden trying to get money for children and the homeless and everything else. You know why? Because they're trying to work their way to God. Now, they may not know that and they may not verbalize it, but what they're thinking is, is if I do enough good things, and Christmas is a good time to do good things, if I do enough good things and do enough stuff for people, surely I'm going to end up all right. Folks, the reason the gift was provided is because you and I can't do enough good things. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. You can give to every homeless person in America. You can feed every starving person. You can clothe every naked person. You can take care of all those that are hungry and needy. And I can tell you this, that's not good enough to get you in the doors of heaven. The gift was provided because you couldn't obtain the gift. You can't buy it, you can't charge it, you can't create it. It was provided free of charge. By grace are you saved through faith. That's how you have a right Christmas. You realize that God provided the only gift that you can't buy. And that was the gift of His Son. The hymn at Calvary says, Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan, that was eternity. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man, that was Bethlehem. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span, that was Calvary. Why was the gift provided? So that you and I could leave this place this morning with a right Christmas. Thirdly, how was the gift wrapped? Philippians chapter 2, how was the gift wrapped? Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. How did the gift come wrapped? came wrapped in humility. The one who made man became man. The Creator got involved in creation, in flesh and blood. The one who came was not contaminated by sin. 
And yet he emptied himself. He left his eternal existence and came at a point in time and became a God-man, all God, all man in one person. And he came as a virgin-born, humble child. He didn't parade in on a white stallion. He didn't come in with regal robes. That'll be the next time. But that time he came in humility, helpless, unless he was taken care of by a woman, helpless at the hands of the greatest empire of the world. And yet he came humbly, and he walked as a humble man. And he came from the womb of a virgin. Now, folks, let me tell you something. If we ever start to doubt the virgin birth, you have no authority for any other fulfillment of anything in Scripture. You lose the virgin birth, you lose every bit of the New Testament. We have no reason to be here this morning. In fact, Machen wrote a book on the virgin birth of Christ, and a professor, a liberal professor at Harvard School of Divinity, took Machen's book and studied it for almost five years trying to deny the virgin birth and said Machen did such a good job of explaining the historical accuracy of the facts in Scripture and in history about the virgin birth that no argument of Machen's about the virgin birth can be denied. I want to try to explain to you a little bit about what happened. In the Old Testament, there are 60 major prophecies about Christ. There are 270 other verses in the Old Testament that have ramifications that ha will happen when the Messiah comes. 60 major prophecies, 270 ramifications. In a book that is written over a period of over a thousand years, the last prophecy given 400 years before Christ was born. In the Old Testament, we have prophesied that they will be born of a virgin in Isaiah 7, verse 14. There's a prophecy that he will be crucified 800 years before the method of crucifixion was even created. There's a relation of how he will die, of the people's reaction, of the place that he will be born, of the reception that the people will have toward him. All prophesied in the Old Testament. Almost 300 references to Messiah. And they've all got to be fulfilled in one person. You say, well, all the circumstances were just manipulated and the writers just kind of came up with it and they all put it together and, and it just kind of happened and then they wrote it after the life of Christ and kind of made this all up. Folks, the Old Testament was finished 400 years before he was born. God put together a situation that man could not plan or control and gave enough references to Jesus Christ and a picture of Messiah that when he came and people put the picture alongside of him, they said, yep, that's him. That's who he is. He was born there. He did this. He did this. He did it. That's him. You say, well, they just got lucky. In the area of apologetics, there is not one prophecy related to the coming Messiah that has not been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In the book Science Speaks, I want to read this quote to you. By using the modern science of probability in reference to eight prophecies, now notice what this, this book says, eight prophecies out of 60 
In using eight prophecies, we find that the chance of any one man living and fulfilling all eight prophecies is one in 100 quadrillion. Now, folks, you got a better chance of walking out on this parking lot and getting hit by a meteor than you do of one person fulfilling one prophecy related to the Messiah. This book states that for eight prophecies out of 60 to have been fulfilled in one person at one time in one place was one in 100 quadrillion. Well, my goodness, that's even bigger than the national debt. In fact, let me give you a picture that will help you understand how it is impossible for eight prophecies about Jesus Christ to be fulfilled. If you take the state of Texas and you fill the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars and you take one silver dollar out of all the silver dollars that cover every area of the state of Texas two feet deep and you give a man a blindfold and you put that blindfold on him and you tell him he can walk anywhere in the state of Texas go any corner he wants to reach down at any point and for that man to reach down in two feet deep silver dollars and on the first try pick up the one that you have marked that's the chances of one person fulfilling all the verses about Messiah you know what that's indescribable it's indescribable that God, one person, Jesus Christ, could fulfill every prophecy in one person when you and I could walk around in the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars and probably never find the coin in our lifetime if we weren't blindfolded. The gift was provided and wrapped in humility. Finally, what was the gift worth? By the way, before we go to the last one, what was the gift worth? Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. Turn there if you would. Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. I love the Lord because He's so interested in detail. Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. And to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary... Now notice this little phrase, by whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. I want you to notice the structure of that verse, and to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom. That by whom doesn't relate to Joseph. That by whom relates to Mary. You know why? Because in the Greek, that is singular feminine. God cared so much that we understood that the virgin birth was important that in one little phrase, two little words, by whom it would be Greek singular feminine, which means it has no reference to Joseph at all. Joseph didn't have anything to do with it. Mary, by whom was born Jesus. God became man through a virgin-born, humble child. And then the last one, what is the gift worth? Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, the last part of verse 2 and verse 3 resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ Himself, 
in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What was the gift worth? The gift was worth the fact that in Christ is hidden every attribute of eternal God. All the wisdom, all the knowledge, all the love, all the grace. And when we look at Christ, we see every attribute of God. What was the gift worth? It's worth what it was worth to the shepherds. It's worth us dropping everything and an unadulterated, unmixed, unhurried worship. We adore Christ our King. That's what it's worth. It is worth you and I giving our lives. Born is the King of Israel, but has He been born in your hearts? You see, it's worth us responding like the shepherds, not worrying about our activities and our jobs and our business and the sheep and what we're going to do and who's going to feed them, but rushing off to see this great thing which God has done and to bow before Him and to worship Him and to adore Him, not as a baby in a manger, but as a risen Lord ascended and elevated to the throne of God. That's what it's worth. Sometime in the next 24 hours, you're going to hear a little song. Santa Claus has come into town. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. Folks, let me tell you, more important than Santa Claus coming to town, you better watch out because there's going to come a day when the Christ child is going to come to town. And he's going to have seen you when you're sleeping. And He knows when you're awake, and He knows when you've been bad or good. So you better be saved for Jesus' sake. Let's stand together with heads bowed and eyes closed. Some of you are here this morning, and you have come expecting to just tokenize the Lord at Christmas. God's gotten a hold of your heart and He's reached down to within your soul and He said to you that you need to ask Christ to come into your heart. You know when you're going to have a right Christmas? When you're right with the Christ of Christmas. That's when you'll have a right Christmas. That's when Christmas will have meaning. That's when it'll have purpose. That's when the circumstances and the economy and the family situations and all of that won't matter anymore because Christ will be the purpose of your Christmas. You can ask Him into your heart today. The gift has been provided. You are dead in your trespasses and sin, and you can come this morning and be made alive in Christ. I want to encourage you to do that this morning. I'm going to pray. We're going to be here at the front. We're going to sing a familiar Christmas carol, in fact, one we sang earlier this morning. Now, I'm going to ask all of you to sing as a, as a hymn of celebration. We're going to sing the hymn. And we're going to sing especially that second verse of uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Turn, if you would, to hymn number 83, because I want you to see those words of that hymn. In fact, I want us to read verse 2, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to sing. Verse 2 of Hark the Herald Angels Sing.
page 83 in your hymn book. Let's read it together. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold Him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. Father, I thank You that we can worship, and that is our response to the newborn King. I thank You, Father, that we do not worship a dead God lying in a grave, but we worship a resurrected Lord who has ascended on high and who has made us right with Him. Father, for those who are here this morning dead in trespasses and sin, I pray that You'd make them alive by Your grace. May this be the fullness of their time to come to know You as Lord and Savior, for I pray it in Jesus' name. We're singing together.